This is our fourth Sunday in a series during the month of July called Women of the Old Testament. This morning, the woman that we are going to encounter in Scripture is a prophetess named Huldah. How many of you have ever heard of Huldah before? A few of you, right? Not too many. So let us listen to the Word of God for us this day in 2 Kings chapter 22, starting at verse 14. So the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She resided in Jerusalem in the second quarter where they consulted her. She declared to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, all the worlds of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and made offerings to other gods, so that they have provoked me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But as to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring on this place. They took the message back to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word for us, for this prophet Huldah, and for the words of her mouth. God, we ask your blessing upon our time this morning as we consider your word for us this day. Amen. In my first year as a pastor, one Sunday morning after one of several school shootings that had happened in our country, a member of my church approached me on the way into church and said, I hope you're going to say something about the shooting. If not, I have no reason to be here this morning. 
That same, same Sunday, after church, I had someone tell me as they were walking out the door that I should be careful about talking about politics in church. Two people, both members of the same church, and both with expectations around a question of the role of the church, or perhaps even the role of the preacher. Same morning, same sanctuary, expectations that we bring, expectations of a congregation, expectations of those coming to worship God, expectations of the community of faith. I struggled that morning, and even more so in the years that would come in other sermons, I struggled wondering whether my words would anger people in the congregation because they weren't strong enough, or because of what I left unsaid, or anger others because I was too political. And this isn't a challenge that was limited to that congregation or this congregation. It's a challenge that preachers face, and especially preachers who, like me and like many people in my profession, are people pleasers, people who like to smooth things over to keep people happy. It's what I do. I like people to be happy. And so, because of that, it's often been hard at times to accept the reality that when we follow Christ, it means pleasing God comes before pleasing people. Pleasing God, honoring God, means choosing to honor God over honoring our own comfort. But aside from comfort and pleasing, following Christ means that we are over and over again being called to a realignment with God's purpose and vision for the world. Even when this purpose and vision is counter to our own comfort, and even when it might upset people. In our text this morning, Huldah does not seem to have this problem. I'll confess that I almost changed to a different woman of the Old Testament this week. I chose Huldah several weeks ago, and almost immediately after choosing her, I began to struggle with this text. But so often, when a scripture text causes us to struggle, I think we're being sent a message, right? That perhaps we need to sit with it just a little bit longer and perhaps sit with our own struggle a little longer. So I decided to sit with it and see how my struggle with this difficult text could somehow speak truth into my life and our lives. So here we have her, Hulda, and all of her words that she has. We don't know much about Huldah. In fact, the, the details we have, and, and you may have picked up on this, the details we have at the front end of that text that I read are almost all about her husband and who her husband is. And it's important because her husband had a pretty significant role in the household of the king. He was the wardrobe manager for the king. He dressed the king. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One, because that role is important. It has some of the most significant access to the king, right? The person who dresses them. I don't know. I don't have anyone to dress me, but I would think if I did, they would have the most access, right? And they also would have to be the most trusted person, one of the most trusted. So here we have this woman who we don't know much about, but we know that she's married to a man who does have that access. 
We know also that she is a respected prophet, a prophet. Now, we're jumping here back about 700 years before Jesus. For generations, there had been terrible leaders in the southern kingdom of Judah. The country was in disarray. And you can tell how bad things might have been because they ultimately, when they can't really find any other king, they ultimately find an eight-year-old to be the king. So King Josiah becomes, an, uh, becomes king of Judah at eight years old, and the country is in a mess. The interesting thing about Josiah is that he turns out to be a devoted and faithful man. After this series of bad leaders, Josiah earnestly tries to do good. Just before the scene in our text this morning, and I want to acknowledge that I jumped right into a, to the middle of a scene with that text. So if you were a little confused about what was going on, that's okay. We're going to spend a little time giving you a little bit more detail about what happened. So just before that text... Just before that text, Josiah gathers his cabinet, his closest advisors, and he tells them he wants to figure out how much money is available to give to workers to fix up the church, the temple, which has fallen into significant disarray. It's funny how some things don't change, right? We have a church that often needs work, and we go back and we look and we say, how much can we spend to do this? But in this situation, it's, it's a far bigger situation because King Josiah is looking at the church as an indicator that this falling apart building is saying that there's a problem with far more than just the structure. It's about the people, and they're... they're um, stopping of following God, right? So it's not that, the, that fixing the building is going to solve the problem, but Josiah, I think, sees this as a way to begin, a start, because the people have lost their way. So he says, go look in the records and figure out how much money we have. And so off they go, and they're, they're going and they're pouring through these papyrus records and looking through them. And in the text, it, it indicates that these weren't exactly regularly kept records, that it was sort of a storehouse of almost junk, right? And you can imagine that if everything was in disarray in this, in this nation at this time, things are falling apart, the people aren't worshiping God anymore, they've gone astray, the finances have had probably gone astray as well. We know that there was significant strain on this kingdom. So off they go. But while they're pouring through these documents, what happens feels almost like a scene from a movie. The high priest Hilkiah goes to one of the other leaders, Shaphan, and he says to Shaphan, I've found something among these records. He tells them that he's found what he calls the book of the Lord, mixed among all these financial records. The priests examine the scroll that he finds, and they determine that it was what they call the Book of the Covenant. And there's some confusion, or at least interpretation, that has gone into this question of what did this mean, the Book of the Covenant? But most scholars have concluded that it was at least the Book of Deuteronomy, if not the entirety of the Talmud, those, those first books of the Bible where we have all of the rules and instructions about how people are to live and how they are to worship God. Deuteronomy in particular is filled with those earliest stories 
of God's faithfulness to God's people, but also God's instructions, the laws that God gave to Moses, the Ten Commandments among them. So after they make this grand discovery, you can imagine they're not quite sure what to do, and so they go to the king, and they tell the king that they've found these scriptures. And Josiah asks the priests to read the book to them, and they do. And when Josiah hears the words from the book, when he hears about all of these rules, these instructions, these guides of how to live out a faith, how to follow God, the rules related to living faithfully, not just for him, but for his people, when he hears them read the book, he tears his clothes. Whenever you hear someone ripping their clothes in the Bible, it's not because they want a new look. It's a sign of grief, a sign of sorrow, of mourning. It's an extreme sign of sadness. And Josiah tears his clothes because he knows that the people of his kingdom have strayed. They've strayed from God. They've been breaking all the rules. I've struggled with this because I sometimes have trouble figuring out how did it take hearing all of that scripture for him to come to this realization? How did he miss it? But if the scriptures hadn't been read, if in fact they had been lost or ignored, how would he know? He knew there was a problem. He saw the crumbling church. He saw the idols. He saw the way that the people had lost their way, but he couldn't connect it. I remember being at someone's house when their mother was dying and this man who was probably in his 70s says, oh, I've got something to show you. And he got excited and he brought me a box and he opened it up and in perfect condition was his confirmation Bible. And I said, oh, that's lovely. Has it been in the box since, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago? And he said, yes. And I thought, hmm, when, when, the, when the scripture had been put away, hidden, lost with the financial records, Josiah, he couldn't have known, perhaps. But then he hears the word, and he panics. He's despondent. He doesn't know what to do, and so he gathers his high priests again, his advisors, that whole group, and he tells them, figure out what I need to do. Figure out what God wants from me. There are five men, five of the top priests and advisors to the king, and these five men, you can imagine, look at each other. Now, during this time, this is the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And they could have gone to Jeremiah. In fact, this one of these men, Shaphan, was very, very close. He was the scribe of Jeremiah. But the men don't go to Jeremiah. And the men don't seem to verbalize their own conclusions. We don't know why. There's nothing in our text to indicate the reasons. What we know is Josiah told them, the five of them, to figure it out. So why, why didn't they be the ones to figure it out? Why weren't they the ones? Were they afraid of being responsible for more bad news? 
Were they people pleasers like I've confessed to being? Did they not want to be the ones to bring that bad news? Did they want to find someone else who might be able to find that silver lining or the other interpretation of what was going on? I don't know. I don't know. But this is where we picked up our text today. When these five guys go see Huldah. And our text says that they went to her and they consulted her. They asked this faithful and wise woman what she thought God might be saying to King Josiah. That's exactly what he asked them to do. What might God be saying to King Josiah and to God's people in light of the scripture that was discovered and especially in light of what was going on in Judah? And Huldah speaks the truth. She speaks the truth. She doesn't sugarcoat it, does she? She spoke the truth of the situation. She talked of the wayward people and she explains all the bad things that will happen because the people have strayed. And at first, that's it. She points it out. She calls it out. The men take the message of Huldah back to Josiah, and Josiah listens, and he responds. And and in the coming chapters of 2 Kings, we learn that Josiah will become a major reformer. He'll be known as a major reformer in that kingdom. He spreads the word about the covenant, about God's laws. He renews the people and their commitment to following God and to keeping the commandments. Josiah and his high priests destroy the idols. They changed government actions that were inconsistent with the law. They examined policies. Yes, Josiah becomes a major reformer, trying to right the ways of the people. Josiah knew, though, When he first heard that text read aloud, he knew there was a problem, and that's why he tears his clothes. He knows there's a problem. And in the midst of the problem, Huldah speaks some truth to him. But I don't know if you noticed this. The tearing the clothes happened before he went, he sent the men to Huldah. The tearing the clothes, the remorse. It's almost as though he knew at that moment that something was going to have to happen. And so when Huldah gives her very uh, bleak news, her bleak observation about what God was going to do, it probably wasn't that much of a surprise to him. But did you notice what shifted in her speech? And you you might have heard this. Because her speech shifts and she says, because you have heard and because you are remorseful and because you have the ability to make a change, because of all of this, because of all of this, God will have compassion on you. She speaks compassion to him, compassion and truth divine direction into the grief that Josiah was experiencing when he heard the scroll read aloud. Speaking truth, especially difficult truth, is challenging. But this woman of the Old Testament, she spoke the truth. She answered the call like prophets before her to walk through the difficult and the challenging, 
And she calls for a change. She calls for that return, for that repentance, that redirection toward God. Huldah could have just as easily chosen to try and smooth things over. She could have advised Josiah like so many others had advised him and the kings before him, told them to ignore the reality of the situation of what was going on and enjoy life, enjoy the power, enjoy being king. But she doesn't. But I'm guilty of this sometimes. I've been guilty at times of focusing on the positive and not looking enough at the challenges. The challenges of the day, the challenges of our world, the challenges all around us. And focusing more on keeping the peace than on looking at the world through the lens of Scripture and the ways that we might be called to mourn for our world, or where we might be called to be compelled to be agents of change in the world. I had someone tell me one time that they come to church to feel good and not to be burdened. And I like that. I think it's, it's biblical. It's a good idea. And I understand it. And I want to feel good and I want you to feel good. But I also hope that when we come to church, we come to engage our brains and to not be oblivious to the world going on around us and engage our lives in acts of faith that mean learning about scripture, that mean learning about what it means to follow God, and then going out into the world to ask the question of, well, what does that mean? What does my faith mean for the world around me? And so in worship, I hope that we engage our minds and that we acknowledge that we live in a broken world that is in need of God's grace and a world where there is conflict and tension and also a world where there is a need to be messengers of truth like Huldah. We can look at the courage that she had and recognize that there are times when we as individuals and when we as a church need to not run from the difficult areas of life, even the controversial areas of our day that we would rather avoid and smooth over. Sometimes we need to sit with them, cry with the tears of the world, struggle with the areas of disagreement, hold them, and recognize that God is with us even in the midst of those difficult situations, or friends, perhaps especially in the hard and difficult situations and the areas where we might experience disagreement or tension. And then in those difficult discussions and in our engagement of the issues of the day, we look at them like Huldah, prayerfully, reverently, through the lens of Scripture and in light of our faith. We look at the issues of the day and we ask ourselves how God might be speaking into those areas and how God might be using me or you or us collectively to bring a difficult word, but hopefully an encouraging word to the world around us. Huldah's bold act of truth-telling, her leadership in the court of Josiah and her leadership for us can be a guide. Huldah took this burdensome path of discerning God's will 
and then following it, and we're called to do the same. But how? I returned earlier this week from study leave with a group of 24 clergy in England. For 10 days, we lived together in community, shared meals with one another. Three times a day, we gathered in prayer and worship. We spent time in the study of scripture and in the challenging work of then looking at the world around us and asking ourselves and one another, how do we speak of God in the midst of a world that is filled with tension and conflict. We were looking at a variety of issues, including poverty and food insecurity, the need for grace, a changing church, and global commerce and political relations specifically between the West and China. We grounded our discussions in practices of faith. In fact, we spent the first several hours of our day not even approaching the topics directly, but in worship, Bible study, and prayer. And then we listened to experts on the topic of the day before engaging the issue through the lens of our faith. It was then that we needed to bring together each of those elements of our process to faithfully ask the question of what God might be saying in the midst of that issue. Each day, a different topic. We did not always agree. Certainly in our small group of eight clergy, we did not agree. In our larger group of 24, there were wildly different viewpoints at times. And so God did not always speak through what I would call unanimous clarity. But God's voice was present. God's voice was present in the faithful conversations. And as our time progressed over those few days, and as relationships were formed, and as trust developed, and after continued shared experiences of prayer and study, it began to be clear that we did find areas of agreement and where we could see God's direction moving more clearly within a particular situation or topic. We weren't debating, and this is important. We weren't advocating for a particular viewpoint. We were discerning together. And when we disagreed, we could do so knowing that we disagreed in love and in a thoughtful and faithful way. Now, we can't all go spend 10 days in a medieval castle praying like it's the 13th century every day. But we do this in our church. We build relationship. We pray with one another. We worship with one another. We read scripture with one another, and we're encouraged to read scripture when we're not with one another, but perhaps to discuss scripture with each other. We do all of these things, and perhaps that, that piece that, that comes next is asking that question, what does all of this mean for the world around us? What does it mean for the difficult topics? What does it mean for the challenges of our day? Huldah points Josiah to God's word. He's well aware of the world around him. She points him to God's word. She gives him the encouragement to guide the people toward faithfulness 
and to change their ways to conform to God's call on their lives. This is a strong prophetic word. It's a strong and prophetic word for us as well. Our faith, our common faith and our individual faith depends upon us listening to God's word for us and informing us how we will integrate our faith and our life. This sanctuary is a place of peace. It makes me feel good every time I walk into it. But this sanctuary is not a place of protection from the challenges of the world. It's not a place that we are to come to forget about the world outside. It's a place that we are called to come to be faithful to God in prayer, to be with one another in worship, to study together, to walk together, to love each other, to build relationship with one another, and in all of these things, to also look at the world and ask ourselves together, where is God in the midst of all of it? All of it. Even if we don't agree. And yet we walk. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.